This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. Perry Marshall is an American online marketing strategist and entrepreneur and author of several books, most notably Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design, and For My Money, 80-20 is Outstanding. This is one of the conversations that you sort of bump into when you do a podcast like this, and you're not expecting to have as good of a time as you have, and you're not expecting to like the person that you're interviewing as much as I like Perry. So with no further ado, Perry Marshall in the arena. Perry Marshall, how are you? I am great. Good morning. Great to talk to you today. You know, I've known who you are for a long time, but this is the first time you and I have had a chance to meet. And doing research for this, I'm really thinking I'm going to be talking to somebody who understands modern marketing and particularly the internet and what we're doing with that. But when I started researching you, you're a really interesting guy. And I don't think if if people don't really know where you started from, I think they might be surprised. And where I want to start is first your degrees. You have a science degree of some sort. Yes. Yes. Electrical engineering. And so I can see exactly how you would end up in marketing on the internet when you started electrical engineering. It makes total sense to me. Well, engineers have a significant leg up over other people. And in fact, I've said for a long time that you should never hire a pay-per-click person who didn't learn on their own dime, like at Google AdWords or Facebook or something like that. If they didn't learn with their own credit card and their own brass knuckles in their face when they spent $5,000 that they can't get back, then, then you shouldn't hire him to, to do your stuff. But one of my friends, Rob Siraki runs a PPC agency and he says, well, there is an exception. And he says, I hire engineers out of school who know nothing about marketing, but they're good engineers and they can figure this stuff out. And they're really good at it because it's process. It's a, it's a logical, you know, in fact, I studied communications and control systems and so it's kind of like, you know, if you had a chemical factory and you had all of these things going all these different places and you're going to put raw materials in and get finished product out, this is the sort of stuff you would study. And well, a sales funnel is, is exactly that. In fact, they can get very complicated, right? And you have things like attribution, like, well, was it the Google ad or was it that they listened to the podcast or was it that they clicked on the 16th email or, and a lot of times there's not even an exact answer, but like we have to figure this stuff out because billions of dollars of stuff hinge on it. So kind of a weird place to come from, but it served me really well. And so it was the, the rigor of thinking that way as an engineer that makes something else when you look at it that needs to to be designed and it has to follow a process. And then there's an if this, then that. And you're going through all those iterations. It's that level of thinking that makes this natural for you. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I went into sales when I got laid off from my job and my wife was pregnant and, and we we're scrambling around. And, and for a couple of years, sales was like, it's almost like I couldn't figure out which way it was up. You know, I would watch all these people and I would listen to tapes and read books and, and whatever. And people would have all this advice. But w- when it actually started to make sense for me was when I started studying direct marketing and the mail order guys 20 years ago. And this is really before the internet was coming on strong, but the guys in direct mail, they're like, well, we're going to go rent this list and we're going to mail these letters or maybe even a sequence of letters. And we're going to measure the result at every single step. And a sales message has to have this component and this component and this component, because we've studied all of this and we've done a bunch of tests. It was all very scientific. It was like, oh, I get it. And in fact, I remember the first time after I kind of started to wrap my head around copywriting, I remember walking into a sales call to see a customer and I suddenly realized, okay, what you say to this guy is just like a sales letter. There needs to be a headline. There needs to be a bold promise. Then you need to start stirring his emotions by talking about all of his problems instead of your amazing solution. And like, <laughs> there's a process here. And yes, this is logical. Even persuading people is a logical process from, you know, from the marketer's point of view. So eventually I found a way to tie it all together. I had uh, sort of the same experience in law school. You know, it's the the rigor of thinking, you know, it changes the way you start to look at everything outside of it, even though it may not be the same subject, it starts to lend itself to the type of thinking that you learned. It does. And, And you will find that the most learned people, like if If you take a really good lawyer and a really good engineer and a really good doctor and a really good professor and you put them in a room, they'll eventually figure out how to speak each other's language. I really believe that the whole entire world runs on a common set of principles and there is really a unity to everything and it's not just a bunch of different unrelated disciplines. And in our age of super hyper specialization, A lot of people could go their whole life and never realize that, but it's true. And this is what makes you interesting. I mean, there's other things that make you interesting. We already talked about your dog uh, and and the new dog, potentially, while we were not being recorded. But that unity, what was interesting to me about looking at you and and your work is the first book you wrote has nothing to do with either engineering, specifically electrical engineering, and it has absolutely nothing to do with marketing at all, let alone internet marketing, although you will say it does at some point during this conversation, I'm sure. You wrote a book called Evolution 2.0, and I want to ask you, what caused you to write that book, uh, first of all? Well, what caused me to write that book was an argument I got in with my brother on a little bus in China. He had gotten a seminary degree from a conservative Christian seminary, and by the way, our, our dad was a minister and he had moved to China and he was teaching English and he was doing missionary work on the side. And in four years time, he went from right wing Christian to almost atheist. <laughs> and we were in our very close and the emails were flying back and forth and we were debating all this stuff for a really long time. And we're riding on the bus and now we're having another argument. And it's, this is kind of, rattling me. And he is really, really smart. And and so at, at one point I said, okay, Brian, look, look at the hand at the end of your arm. 
I said, no, I'm an engineer and this is a fine, fine piece of engineering. <laughs> I said, I said, you don't think this is a accumulation of random accidents, do you? And he's like, hold on. And he pushes back with this kind of standard Darwinian answer that everybody's heard before. That, well, you know, just the accumulation of mutations and natural selection over millions of years, it's actually almost inevitable that you'd end up with something like a hand and you don't need an engineer. And when he said that, I decided to stop arguing with him. And here's what it was. I didn't really think he was right. And I didn't know anything in engineering that would suggest that he was right. But I also knew that most biologists would probably agree with him more than me and that there was a lot I didn't know. And I, I knew from engineering, there's crazy counterintuitive things that you would never expect to be true, but they're true anyway. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go down the rabbit hole myself and I'm going to get to the bottom of this. And a lot of it was that there was all these arguments about different things and theology and philosophy. And I thought they were all kind of squishy, but science being intimately, intimately familiar with science on a bunch of different levels, especially as a practicing engineer, I said, you know what? I could get to the bottom of this question and I'm going to do it. And so I went down the rabbit hole and you know, so the, the short answer to question was that rabbit hole got more and more and more interesting the further I went. I found that as an electrical engineer, I actually had significant insight into this question because I'd written Ethernet book of all things, which I can explain that connection. <laughs> and And I realized... It took a little bit of time, but I realized that as an author of a Google AdWords book and as a person who's going around doing seminars and getting interviewed and teaching thousands of people how to use Google AdWords, that AdWords was an evolutionary experiment every single day of the week and that all the same principles that make that work are also true in biology and vice versa. In fact, I found things in biology that I could steal from evolutionary biology and use in Google AdWords. Okay, I could talk about that if you want. And I guess, you know, really the punchline was I found that the creation evolution debate as presented to the public is completely butchered, bastardized, and dumbed down. And you got both sides been chewing on the same bone for a hundred years. And they're not talking about the interesting stuff. They're not telling you anything that's really important. And that this was like the biggest untold story in the history of science. It was absolutely amazing. And, and, and what I found was that if you were a hardcore fundamentalist on the left or the right, real science puts you in deep trouble. Okay. Like the most conservative right wing Christians, and I'm a Christian, but the views they tend to hold really very problematic when you get down to real science. And when you talk about people like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne and the atheist guys, those guys are their science is dreadfully bad. 
And the real evolution story is way more interesting than anybody has told you. And so I, I ha- like I had to write this book. And it was a giant pain in the ass, by the way. I mean, it took six years. I just launched a $5 million technology prize, which took me about seven years to organize. And I can talk about that. I mean, there, there are so many rabbit holes. Pause for one second. <laughs> I, I want to know. After six years in writing and publishing a book, first, did you win the argument? Well, I'm certainly undefeated, okay? <laughs> and, and a bit pig-headed to, to devote this much time to an argument with your brother. <laughs> well, you know, a- after a while, it ceased to be about my brother. In yeah, fact, sure. within probably a year or so, Brian was completely on board with what I was doing with my evolution research. Let me jump you a little bit forward in this, because what's interesting to me is that you have come to a conclusion that evolution is not random, and yes. that it is targeted adaptive and aware. And I, I want to understand what that means to you, and if we're talking about some sort of consciousness. Let's, since your audience is marketers and salespeople, I think most people listening can appreciate that when you are running a company and you're trying to figure out your sales message and you're out there doing PowerPoint presentations, or if you're, if you're a marketer and you're buying ads and you're doing sales funnels, when you go out there and start, you know, you got your new product or your new program or your sales launch or whatever, you do not know what is going to work. And you have to try a bunch of different stuff. And really, it's usually a race of how many different things can you try before you run out of money, right? (laughs) And, you know, whether you're straight commission or doing a startup or whatever, okay? And so so you test things, right? If you've done Google ads or Facebook ads, you know exactly how this works. You're like, well, we picked this audience and let's try saying this. Well, let's try saying that. Let's try this image. Let's try that image. When I pick up the phone, let's try saying this to the person on the other end. Let's try saying that. And you eventually test your way to success. Well, I started looking at what the traditional old school Darwinian guys were saying, and they were saying, well, I'll quote my brother because he he kind of encapsulated really well. When we're on the bus, he goes, look, Perry. He says, let's say there's a billion falcons flying around for 100 million years, and every now and then there's going to be a copying error in the DNA, and every now and then it might make their eyesight better. And so eventually, the one with better eyesight beats all the other ones, and so everything just keeps getting better and better and better. And I said, well, in all my evolution experiments in business and engineering, it never actually works that way. You don't get better Google ads with copying errors or by, you know, jamming your elbow on the keyboard or or anything like that. You get better ads by trying a different potential way of saying it by going and stealing an idea from somewhere, but it's it's never just random. And and so then I was really suspicious of this, this randomness idea. Well, then I went I started going into the biology and what I actually found out was evolutionary steps are not from random copying errors, even though there's a whole bunch of textbooks that say they are. They're really because cells cut, splice, rearrange, and change their own DNA in real time. So if you're taking antibiotics 
And the doctor says, okay, you have to finish the bottle, right? Like finish the whole thing, even the even if you're better halfway through. The reason he tells you to do that is because if you don't kill those bugs dead, the bugs will turn into super bugs. Well, the way that the bugs turn into super bugs is let's say you've got a you're you got strep and you got strep germs and you're taking antibiotics for strep. Well, those strep germs are going man, you know, this, this antibiotic is killing me. It's leaking in my cell wall. And if I don't pump this out, I'm going to die. So it'll go around and it, it will look for another cell that has a pump. It will find one that does, and it will pull in a copy of its DNA that codes for a pump. It will read the instructions, build the pump, pump the poison out, and then it'll start sharing new DNA with all of its strep friends, it'll start dividing daughter cells that have pumps. And this can happen in 30 minutes. Now, that's not random. In fact, it's just like a guy furiously writing Google ads before he runs out of money. That's, that's what's really going on. And I started peeling the layers and I started reading all these scientific papers and most of the stuff I'm talking about, like you would never find it at Barnes & Noble buying the popular evolution books. In fact, most freshmen wouldn't even find it in their freshman biology book. But I started reading actual papers where people would do these amazing evolutionary experiments. And I started finding out the cells are redesigning themselves. And that's what's really going on. And it's, I think it's the biggest untold story in science. It's interesting that when you get outside of the dumbed down version, you find out that there's still, at the end of this, I think for most of us, still just a great mystery. We still don't understand as much as we would need to understand to have a, a level of understanding. Oh, not even, not even close. In fact, I would say that we understand no more than 5% of how evolution actually works. And the 5% is probably optimistic. Like, life is a very, very deep mystery. And so, like, all the guys that just want to give you this really simple answer, they're all fundamentalists who are peddling a dogma. Richard Dawkins is a dogma-peddling fundamentalist. He's not practicing science. In fact, his evolution work is terrible. I mean, it is just terrible. The best thing I could say about the selfish gene is that it is a parable of sort of vaguely kind of like how life evolves that was 20 years out of date the day it was published 40 years ago. But it's very well written, and it's very appealing, it's very attractive, and it's very simple. It's understandable, and, yeah. And understandable, and, that's, and so that, that's why it's like the prevailing paradigm. But it is, it is very wrong on a whole bunch of levels. The thing I like most about science is that new science tends to be better than old science. And you know we're learning, but not as fast as we would want to, but it does tend to improve over time. Well, it does. And th that is the wonderful thing about science is that science as defined, it is, it's self-correcting and it kind of stumbles and bumbles around in a search for the truth and it goes down blind alleys. But when it gets to a blind alley, eventually it gets corrected. The, the only sad part is sometimes it takes a really long time 
Here's an example of that. 200 years ago, a French guy named Lamarck said that organisms can learn things and then pass the learning to their progeny. And he was completely laughed. In the 20th century, he was completely laughed out of the academy. And it was proclaimed to be ridiculous and stupid. Well, in the 21st century, we have proven that he was right. Yeah. He was right all along. It took him 200 years to be vindicated by science. So that's, that's a long time, buddy. That's <laughs> a long time. He's uh, not here to time. see that. Let me move us forward. And I want to talk about, I think it's your second book on the Pareto Principle, uh, the 80-20 yeah. rule, which I find to be mostly honored in the breach. Tell me what brought you to that, why you wrote that particular book. And what you were hoping to help people with. I had an epiphany one day, and it was one of the biggest epiphanies that I've ever had in my life. And it was, again, it was one of these connecting different fields together kind of experiments. And I knew what the 80-20 rule was already for a long time. And it was this idea that 20% of your customers generate 80% of your revenues, and the other 80% only produce 20%. And and I had seen that when I was a sales manager, but it pretty much stopped there. And, and I just kind of thought it was this business rule of thumb. But I was reading Richard Koch's book, The 80-20 Principle. And at this one point, he made this almost throwaway comment. He said, 80-20 has a lot to do with chaos theory and fractals. And then he just went on and he talked about something else. I'm like wait a minute, I've studied that. Fractals are really fascinating. And if you're not quite sure what they are, you should just look it up and like go find a Wikipedia page or a YouTube video and learn about it. But it's the idea that in nature, there's patterns within patterns within patterns. And you can have a really simple pattern that might be from a super simple little math formula. But when you repeat it and repeat it and repeat it, you get this giant repeating pattern that repeats at every level. So like if you look at a tree, you can look at the whole entire tree and it's got that branching pattern, but you could keep zooming into branches, to leaves, to twigs. You could put a leaf under a microscope and you will still see the same branching pattern in a microscope between the cells feeding nutrients to the cells. Okay. And that, that's a fractal. Okay. And as soon as Richard said that it was a fractal pattern, I suddenly realized, hey, wait a minute. If that's true, then that would mean that there's an 80-20 inside every 80-20. And that means that there's another one. There was another one inside of that and another one inside of that. And I was at a coffee shop and I jumped up and I ran home. I got out all these papers and sales reports and traffic stuff and my calculator. And I start looking, I'm like, oh my word. If I look at the top 20% of my customers who do 80% of my business, there's a top 20% of them that do 80% of that. And then there's a top 20% of them that does 80% of that. And I figured out, well, you could look at the whole entire earth and 7 billion people and the income of the 7 billion people is 80-20, but then I could look at the top 10 members of the Forbes 400, the top 10 richest guys in the world, and it's still 80-20. Oh, my word. Well, 
this actually is incredibly powerful because what it does is it allows you to make 80-20 into a predictive tool instead of just something you use in hindsight. So you know that everything is going to organize itself. It's going to self-organize into an 80-20 pattern. And you know this is going to happen before you even start your company or even launch your product. So all of a sudden, you could do a tiny little test and you could infer huge amounts of economic data just from one tiny test. You could figure out much quicker if a company is going to scale. You can you can figure out much quicker if a market is actually going to be profitable long before you actually make the profit. And so I found with my customers, there's a certain kind of person, they suddenly latch onto this idea. They see that it is so incredibly deep and that it it applies to almost everything. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, I could spend the whole rest of my life getting better and better and better at just 80-20. And I can be an absolute badass marketing consultant or turnaround specialist or running my own company or whatever. So that's why I wrote 80-20 sales and marketing, because nobody had ever really expanded on this idea of the 80-20, 80-20 squared, 80-20 cubed, 80-20 to the 10th power, but it's there. I had to mute myself to take notes while you were, were saying that because, yeah, that's that's interesting. So tell me, now that you recognize that, if you want to apply this to something like marketing, yeah, if from, from a, a segmentation perspective, you can say, the top 20% are going to account for 80% of the revenue, but the top 20% of that are going to account for 80% of that revenue. Right. So a persona and a segmentation, the more clear you could get about what makes up that top 20% to 20% means that that's really where all of, I'm thinking about a scarce resource like money. So you, you started our conversation talking about somebody running Google AdWords and with a limited budget running experiments to figure this out. I've cleared up some of the experiments I need to run if I have a, a good idea of what the 20% to top 20% looks like. So here's an example from 80-20 sales and marketing. So let's say that you run a Starbucks and you get 1,000 people a week that spend $5 each on a latte. So that's $5,000 of lattes. Well, 80-20 says that 20% of those people want to spend four times more money and will, if given the chance. And 20% of those will spend four times more. And 20% of those will spend four times more. So that means that out of a thousand people that spend five bucks on a latte, one of them is almost guaranteed to buy a $2,700 gleaming stainless steel espresso machine along with their latte. Okay, and that's $2,700 on top of your $5,000. You might be talking okay. to one of those people. Well, right, right. Marketers call this the hyper-responsive customer. They have the unscratchable itch, and they love espresso so much. They love coffee so much. They'll go home. They'll, they'll put this thing on the counter. But see, then the next day, they'll come back to Starbucks, and they'll buy another latte from you. So that's like 80-20 cubed or something, right? You're going to get that behavior from the small number of people. Well, but then you can start applying 80-20 in other ways too. And, and it might be like this. You go, well, that person is also going to be in the top 1% of some other kind of eccentricities 
two. And if we identify those eccentricities, I will know where to find other people that are like that. Okay. So what are the, some of those other eccentricities? Well, some really obvious ones would be that they're affluent. They live in certain kinds of zip codes. You're bound to find that 80% of your espresso machine sales are in 20% of the zip codes. You're going to look for things like people that are hyper-responsive about one thing are usually hyper-responsive about everything, okay? And so, for example, this is probably a person whose favorite artist, they have 15 of their albums and not just two or three because they buy everything from that artist, like they don't just have three Springsteen albums. They have all the Springsteen albums and they go to all the concerts. In fact, maybe they follow the guy around the country, right? If they follow the guy around the country, it might mean that they're also a traveler and they, they buy a lot of plane tickets. And, and so marketers call these cohorts. You'll find that, they're among a group of people that share a whole set of extreme behavior characteristics. When I did my first Google AdWords seminar in Maui, I did a couple of them, and it was like this high-end seminar, and you had to be spending a minimum amount of money on AdWords, and it was all these kind of you know ninjas. I did this experiment. I said, I'm really curious. How many people, so there was a hundred people in the room. I said, how many of you are brown belt or above in martial arts? And there were eight out of a hundred. Okay. Now, 8% of the people in the broad general world are not brown belts or above in martial arts. But I had a group of high performance advertising and marketing people who like to sit and, you know, do the Zen of pay-per-click marketing. And without even trying to, I attracted a whole bunch of martial arts people. Why? Well, because high level marketing is like martial arts. So this is how you start to use 80-20. And, and when you start to think this way, you end up having shortcuts to all kinds of rapid insights that would take, most people would only stumble into these things by accident, but you know to look for them. Yeah, accidents are are nice when they happen, but from a marketing and sales perspective, you're looking for predictability. Let me move you forward to your area of expertise, although you've demonstrated a pretty deep thinking in a whole bunch of areas so far in this short call we've had. So you are known for search engine marketing generally. I'm going to categorize it that way because it's Google ads, it's Facebook ads, and you sort of generally cover all the bases. Tell me from somebody who I do work there I because I write books and things like that, that looks like a game that's changing dramatically to me. And tell me about how you're applying this thinking about cohorts and the 80-20 rule to being effective in marketing on the internet. Well, I was talking to Brian Kurtz yesterday, and he did a seminar called Titans of Direct Marketing a few years ago. And everybody in the industry knows him as kind of one of the legendary guys. And he said to me, he goes, I've never seen anything in modern digital marketing that didn't already exist by the 1960s. Really? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it's just and he digitized. Said, so for, yeah, exactly. Exactly. He said, so for example, you know, Facebook has these similar audiences where you can upload a, a list of customers and Facebook will find more people like them, which, you know, based on all those cohorts and stuff, which, and it's amazingly good. He goes, most people don't know that Reader's Digest was doing that with mainframe computers in the 1960s, trying to figure out where they should mail all these subscription letters to. And so, of course, it's 10,000 times faster now, but it's essentially the same thing. And, you know, Claude Hopkins wrote Scientific Advertising in 1918. Well, why am I telling you this? Because there's kind of a yin and a yang to all of this, which is, yes, the yin is, yes, this stuff changes all the time and you can't be sleepwalking and, you know, you have to pay attention to it. But the yang is. There's nothing new under the sun. It's a pattern, right? You can still see the same pattern. We're back to talking about the stamping of genes. Yes. If every time something new shows up and you go, okay, where has 100,000 people already seen this before? And most people think it's new, but it's really old. That's the question to be asking. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, news is old things happening to new people. Okay. And that's really true. And if you can see the mother patterns, nothing will really surprise you. Okay. And you'll realize that history is just going to keep repeating itself and it's going to look new to most people, but it's not going to be new to the wise and the educated people. And there's lots of people, they churn in and out like, they're successful, they're rich, they're making a million dollars a year, and then all of a sudden they're broke or they're down and out. But, you know, there's always this minority of people that always seems to land on top. The weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. There's people, they'll just continue to get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. There'll be an economic boom and they'll do well. There'll be a crash and then they'll do even better. You know, I was talking to a billionaire a couple of years ago and he says, we make a ton of money when markets crash. He goes, now it's terrifyingly scary when you're writing that thing down and you don't know where the bottom is going to be. He goes, but if you can keep your head and if you can play by your rules, you make a ton of money when everything goes down. That's when you make the most money. It reminds me, I'm reading Ray Dalio's book, Principles, right now. And basically he did just that. He studied the historic patterns to be able to say, look, the only way you get in trouble is not understanding what happens when these circumstances occur. If you know what happens every time these circumstances occur, it's very easy to predict with some certainty and with much, much that, lower that's risk. Right. That's right. And man, I'm, I'm telling you, it's really important that, that you kind of get this in your head. And most of the time, your gut and your like natural emotional reactions will completely betray you. And again, that's what happens when markets go down is everybody becomes irrational and you just have this lemming thing where everybody kind of runs off the cliff. When I was talking to this billionaire, I said he was running a private investment fund. And I said, well, you know, if we had time, I would love to hear the particular nuances of your model that you use. I said, I, it would just be fascinating. He goes, well, it wouldn't really be as fascinating as you think. He says, 
what we do, you can find in any good investment book. The difference is we just actually do it. And I said, well, what do you mean? Because I really, I was puzzled by what, what is he trying to say? He said, our money is private money. Okay. Like it's just a small group of people. We're not managing other people's money. He said, when you manage other people's money, when markets go down, all the people whose money you manage will start screaming at you and they will not let you do the wise and prudent thing. Mm -hmm. They will have your head on a stick. Yeah. Because they are so terrified. He goes, that's why it's so scary to actually do this stuff. He goes, if you actually do this stuff, you're going to plunge yourself into a void when the market is crashing and it'll be terrifying. And you may lose a lot of money temporarily and it may take years to gain it back. Okay. And it takes a lot of fortitude to just do it, but you have to obey the rules that you've already established for yourself. And so I thought that was really fascinating. And, and he said, managed money is inherently like it, it has this inherent problem that it, it's almost never able to do what it needs to do. And 99% of the money out there in the world is managed. So it's just, wow. Well, that was a valuable conversation. <laughs> You're always learning. Give me one piece of advice. If someone is thinking about advertising on search engines or the social sites, how should they be thinking about maximizing their investments? What's just the general principles? And then I'll ask you to share where we send people to find out more about you and your work. And uh, you've written a lot of books on this. So what's the big general takeaway? That how, sh- how should people be thinking now? Well, I'll give you one that's like 100 years old that will never fail you. And it's called RFM. And it stands for Recency Frequency Money. And here's what it is. It says that if you have a group of people and you want to know who's most likely to buy from you today, it is number one, the 20% most recent buyers, followed by the 20% most frequent buyers, followed by the 20% highest spending in money buyers in that order. Okay. So if I have a spreadsheet of 10,000 people who bought from me ever in the history of my company, then if that spreadsheet says when they most recently bought and how many purchases they made and how much money total they've spent, then I can, I can sort all three of those. And I can come up with a list, like whatever size list we want. If we want just a hundred out of the 10,000, or if we want 3000 out of the 10,000, we can accurately predict which ones are the ones. And it's by RFM. Now, this is really useful when you have an in-house list, but it's also useful in pay-per-click because you can use remarketing and retargeting. So the most recent people to visit your website are the easiest and cheapest to get to come back. The most frequent visitors to your website are the easiest and cheapest to bring back. And money, well, 
let's translate that into time spent on website. The people that have spent the most time on your website in history are the ones that are the most easy to bring back. So the best place to start in pay-per-click, which is usually very competitive and expensive and bloody, is to start with start with remarketing, start with retargeting your existing site visitors and then build in concentric circles outward until you actually get to the cold traffic rather than just starting with the cold traffic. It's a much, much easier way to go about it. And RFM is 100 years old, but most people, there's a whole chapter about it in 8020 Sales and Marketing. It shows you how to do it. It's a deep principle and it applies, like it doesn't matter what new feature Facebook or Google just added this week, RFM is still true. And those are the kinds of things that I'm always trying to learn because if you're focused on deep principles, there's not nearly as much stuff that you have to learn or memorize. You just have to go, okay, so how do I apply this old, old idea to this brand new situation? It'll always give you the right answer. Thank you for being here and, and just such a, I find it a fascinating conversation and you're a great thinker. So I appreciate that. Where do I send people to find out more about you? I would send them to perrymarshall.com slash 8020 and you can get 8020 sales and marketing for including shipping $7 in the US and $14 international. And that book will change your life. In fact, I have a lot of people telling me that it's one of the top five best business books they've ever read. And the reason they say that is because they've learned something very deep. It'll still be true in a hundred years. And like, that's the thing. Are you going to invest your money learning something that's going to be obsolete in six months? Are you even going to spend five minutes of your day reading an article about something that's going to be obsolete in six months? Well, I think you shouldn't. You should demand that anything you're going to spend your time reading, listening, learning, mastering, it ought to still be true in at least 10 years and hopefully 100. And man, that'll shrink your reading list. I mean, how many of us have like a huge stack of books and we're like, man, so many books, so little time. Well, here's a way to sort the books. Is this book telling me something that's going to be obsolete in 10 years? then put it in the back of the line. Is this book telling me something that'll still be true in a hundred years? Put it in the front of the line. And well, that'll thin your reading list really fast and you'll be a lot less overwhelmed. I did exactly that. I used to read a book a week and now I read a book a month and I'm, <laughs> al I'm, I'm always reading a book and listening to the audio at the same time and only books that I feel like are going to give me uh, a different lens, a lens that I don't have that's going to provide me some sort of useful advantage. And uh, you're Anthony, right, the list gets really short. That is really wise. That is really, really wise. As, as much as I like to read, you just, you run out of time. So 80-20 rule. It's Anthony's 80-20 rule about what to read. And yeah, if you, if instead of trying to read a book a week or a book a day or, you know, whatever, if you're like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a really good one and I'm going to immerse myself in it for a month. Do you mind if I go on a little tangent before we close off? Not here? at all. Okay. So a year ago, 
I launched a program that we do every few months. We, we relaunch it. It's called 30 day reboot. And it's basically a giant social media unplug, reduce, reduce, eliminate, eliminate things from your life program. Okay. And I, I got huge raves from people. They were like, Oh my word. I had no idea how caught up I was in the matrix. Well, here's some, one of the ingredients of 30 day reboot was this. You should read something written before Gutenberg every day. Okay. Now why, why, why would I come up with that rule? Well, think about it. So if it was written before Gutenberg, then the way we got it was a scribe copied a scroll who, you know, copied it from another scribe who copied a scroll and even though Rome was sacked and even though Alexandria library was burned down and even though there was pogroms and witch hunts and everything else that if it was written before Gutenberg and we have it, then it's, it's the top 20% of the top 20% of the top 20% of the top 20%. And it's not, Hey, everybody, look what I had for sushi for lunch today. Right? Yeah. Okay. And so this is like the antidote to the shallowness of how the world is now. It's like, I'm not going to do Facebook. In fact, I'm not going to be on Facebook before 5 p.m. at all. Okay. I'll be in my advertising account, but I'm not going to do all that other stuff. Right. And I'm going to read something. I'm going to read the Iliad or the Odyssey or Proverbs or the Kama Sutra or the Art of War or or Ecclesiastes or Genesis or the Sermon on the Mount, because this is, this is what a hundred generations of people have preserved. And I told people to do this just because I thought they should. I, as a marketer, I would have never imagined that it would actually catch on. I now have a whole bunch of customers and clients that religiously read something before Gutenberg every day. Now it's really an acid test. If it was written in 1200 AD and we still have it now, is it likely that it's not going to be true a hundred years from now? So you, you went to 1440 for the cutoff. Uh, yeah. Give or take. Because right, right, right. And then you could go back further than that if you wanted to Chinese woodblocks or something like that and say 200. And, And what you're doing is you're saying, what's the deepest truth that has lasted and served human beings for dozens of generations. That's right. Yeah. Versus certainly I love Malcolm Gladwell, but that's now and it's not something that, and it will stand up for a long time, but I don't know about a couple thousand years. Exactly. Now there's, there's kind of a, here's the kind of the, the real payoff. The real payoff is this, is if you start orienting yourself to that kind of thinking, your ability to recognize the thing that's still going to be around in 10 or a hundred years will just go up and up and up and up. Your ability to predict the future will go up. Nassim Nicholas Taleb made a really interesting statement. He goes, people ask me about the future all the time and they go, what's it going to be like in 2050 or 2100? And he goes, well, most of the time they want to know what's going to be different. And he goes, I'd rather talk about what's going to be the same. He goes, he goes, you know, it's going to be the same. There's still going to be tables and chairs and restaurants and wine 
and beer. He says, I refuse to drink anything that hasn't been around for 500 years. So I drink lager, I'll drink wine, I drink water, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not drinking Red Bull. Yeah. I'll drink coffee. I'll drink tea. And, I'll put that in my body. <laughs> Anti-Fragile is one of those books that I've read a couple times and spent a, a month reading rather than something else just because of Tlaib's thinking that way. If you pay attention to him, he reads mostly pre-Gutenberg stuff and he digs deep into it. I mean, it's not just the obvious stuff. I mean, he'll pull it, you know, some guy from Italy from 1300 and he's reading that guy. That's how you become wise. Now, is this going to solve all your problems or pay your rent tomorrow? Maybe not. But man, the compound interest on this, I'm telling you, like, I love your, I love your rule. Like, no, I, I don't do a book a week. I do. I find one good book. I, I listen to it. I read it. I immerse myself it, man, I'm betting money on you. Uh, you, oh, you will go very far in 10 years uh, with oh, that. Oh, over the long term, it's a better strategy. It's way better. It's way better. And when one day when there's a recession or a crash or something and everybody's waking up in their car and you're not, the difference will be evident. Perry Marshall, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you. And uh, it was delightful to have you ask all these. I love the breadth and depth of the questions you asked. Thanks for having me. That was Perry Marshall, and you can find him at perrymarshall.com. You can find me, Anthony Anarino, at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, where I produce videos every single week. When you go to either of those locations, do sign up for my newsletter, my best content every week in your inbox Sunday morning so that you can hit the ground running on Monday. Like this, share this, and go out to iTunes and leave me a review. I appreciate that very much so that we can share this with other people. And until next time, this is Anthony Anarino, and I will see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.